Last time we spoke about Operation Vengeance, the assassination of Admiral Asaru Yamamoto. When the decrypted intelligence hit Admiral Nimitz's desk about the vulnerability of his Japanese rival, he wondered, what should he do? Was it moral? Would it even benefit the Allies? Yamamoto was arguably losing the war all on his own. In the end, he ordered the hit and he sent the job over to Admiral Halsey, who enthusiastically took the bull by the horns. A special squadron of P-38 Lightnings was sent over to perform an extremely precise interception of Admiral Yamamoto's G-4M Betty aircraft en route to Balal Airfield on Bungayville. Yamamoto's aircraft was shot down, killing him and all of those aboard. The death of the Admiral was hidden from the Japanese public for over an entire month, and upon learning of it, the Japanese people all mourned. It was a terrible moment for the Japanese. One of the greatest had now fallen. How would the rest of the war play out? This episode is the Japanese counteroffensive in Arakan. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've just now released my almost two-hour-long documentary on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. This month's exclusive podcast over there is an interview I did with Chuck Myers. Chuck Myers is retired from the United States Navy after serving aboard multiple aircraft carriers, and he is an associate of the USS Hornet Museum today. He also happens to be the main historical consultant for the last Midway film. So the interview was about the USS Hornet and his work on Midway. It's a pretty interesting one. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Before we jump back into the CBI theater, some action was heating up in New Guinea. The Okabe detachment was defeated during the Battle of Wau, seeing the Australians controlling the area from Wapali to Bubaining and much of the Mubo Valley. However, the Japanese remained resilient and would not give up Mubo without a fight. Vigorous patrolling and ambushes were all the Australians could perform, because they didn't have the necessary numbers to launch a major offensive. In early March, General McKay sent word to Blamey, advising him he believed the Japanese might try another shot to seize Wau. He believed even with the projected arrival of the 4th and 15th Brigades, they would still be outnumbered by the Japanese. McKay estimated the Japanese had roughly 7,500 men in the Lei Salamau area, and that they were maintaining a formidable defense in the Mubo region. Therefore, he wanted to continue to restrict their activity to patrols to prevent the Japanese from surprising Wau again, and allowing vital time to build up the defenses. The attack on Mubo in January had not accomplished its objectives, but it did show the Japanese at Lei and Salamawa how much of a hornet's nest they had stirred up by attacking Wau. The Japanese were not done, however, and they hoped to launch a counteroffensive. 
They plan to bring the 51st Division in a large convoy across the Bismarck Sea. But as we saw in a previous episode, this was met with catastrophe during the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, denying the reinforcements, equipment, and supplies the Japanese at Mubo desperately needed. 800 units, mostly from the 102nd Regiment, held various positions at Mubo, and they could not hope to launch a counteroffensive. The supply situation in New Guinea remained a nightmare for both sides. In January, Blimey authorized the construction of a new jeep trail going from the Bulldog to Wow, and it would take months to complete the 68-mile path. By April, the Australians improved their situation in the Mubo area by occupying the heights called The Saddle and Vickers Ridge. They began placing artillery on the heights, and on the 20th, they began to bombard the Japanese position on Green Hill. On the 23rd, Major General Stanley Savage of the 3rd Division established his headquarters at Bololo. Kanga Forest had been officially dissolved. Thus, henceforth, the 3rd Division was responsible for the offensives in the Wau Lei Markham area. For months, the focus had been on reinforcing Wau, expecting a major Japanese offensive at any moment. But the Australians had also maintained a small force, 11 miles from Salamawa, guarding the entrance to the Markham Valley. The 2 and 3rd Independent Company was occupying it in the vicinity of a place called Missim Village along the Francisco River between the Powerhouse and Salamawa. You know, just a little side note here, I don't say it enough, but it really must be hard for you in the audience if you are not looking at a map to understand what the hell I'm talking about for places like this. Honestly, when it comes uh, especially to this campaign, it, it is abysmal to try and explain exactly where everything is. I mean, as you just noticed, I referred to a place just referred to as the powerhouse because it was, in fact, just a powerhouse. So they call it like that as a landmark, particularly with the Australians. They happen to have this all the time with their maps. So um, I'm just recommending if you have a chance, uh, you don't need to go anywhere fancy. You can go right to Wikipedia. There happens to be a pretty decent map there. Just look up uh, the Battle of Mubo or anything in the New Guinea campaign. A lot of good maps to just help you along the way. It's kind of like how... You know what, uh, President FDR, back in the day when he had those famous fireside chats, he used to actually ask his audience over the radio to uh, pull out their maps at home, because I guess people had maps of uh, the South Pacific, I don't know how that worked out, and uh, to follow along, you know, him explaining where the boys were and everything. But back to the story. In early April, they began performing reconnaissance of the area. And on the 21st, they ambushed a column of 60 Japanese, managing to kill over 20 of them and wounding 15. Soon after, their commander was notified by Moten that they were going to be launching an offensive against Mubo, finally set for the 24th. The offensive against Mubo was actually part of something grander. General Blamey planned to capture Lei, forming a plan codenamed Operation Postern, which was quickly approved by General Douglas MacArthur. For the plan to work, the Allies needed to trick General Adachi that Salama was actually the primary target for the major offensive. Thus, to accomplish this, the Australians had the 2 and 3rd Independent Company operate just a few miles from Salamawa, as I had said. General Stanley Savage would not even be aware of these grander plans until June of 1943. Postern called for a large pincer movement involving an amphibious assault east of Ley and an airborne assault near Nadzab. 50 kilometers to the west of Ley. Planning for Postern had begun in May, with Generals Blamey and Herring proposing to seize Nadzab as soon as possible with Brigadier Ether's 25th Brigade and a parachute battalion, 
While the 9th Australian Division, now under the command of Major General George Wooten, would be taking on Ley in early August. Nadzeb was an obvious target. It was undefended and of immense value, not only for the Ley operation, but also for extending the range of Allied air power. In the meantime, Blamey had various forces drive the Japanese out from key areas, but not to attack Salamao directly. The Japanese were going to be in for a major surprise quite soon, but now we are turning over to the CBI theater. Last time we were speaking about General Irwin's Arakan disaster and the Mad Onion Man Wingate's Operation Longcloth. Irwin's blunders had cost countless lives and provided General Koga's 55th Division ample time to regroup. By March 20th, Wavell, Irwin, and Lloyd were accepting they would have to withdraw the forces to the Mangdao Buthadang line. Wavell was incredibly pissed off, and he decided to make Lloyd a scapegoat. Lloyd was dismissed, and he was replaced by General Lomax, who was ordered to simply carry on doing what Lloyd was doing. Lomax came just in time to meet General Koga's counteroffensive, which practically annihilated the 47th Brigade. Irwin, looking to blame anyone, but himself, of course, shifted the blame to the brigade itself rather than his tactical blunders, and then he tried to bring Slim into the mess. The British forces were forced to flee east of the Maui River, and this severely beat the Indian morale, which was already in a horrible state to begin with. Now, how bad was the morale? By early April, morale had plummeted to an all-time new low. This was because of a series of terrible defeats, as we know, Terrible casualties, which for a large part were coming from a growing malaria issue. The 6th Brigade was evacuating 50 men a day to malaria alone. Despite using mepocrine as a suppressive treatment alongside anti-mosquito nets, cream, and wearing long clothes at night, in 8 weeks the 6th Brigade lost half of its total strength. Desertions were on the rise for many units, causing the British commanders a lot of anxiety over their loyalty. Because let's remember, this is a critical time for India as a whole. There is many calling for complete independence from Britain. And with that independence, they're not just calling for political independence, they want to be out of the war. Hell, at some points, a large part of India wanted to join the Japanese because they were beginning to like their message. So when you take it from the position of high command in Britain, India is a hot potato to be sure. General Slim and Lomax met at Chittagong, as Koga was sweeping everything before him. Both generals scoured over their maps, and they agreed Koga's next logical step was an assault on the Mangdao Buthadang line. To meet this attack, Slim and Lomax devised a stratagem for catching Koga in a box along the Maoyu Peninsula. The box was to involve six battalions, two on the ridges of the Maoyu Hills, two along the Maoyu River, and two in the hills south of the Mangdao Buthadang Road. The idea was to let the Japanese advance through the most likely location. This was uh, some tunnels on a disused railway track. Once the Japanese were along the tunnels, they would close the lid on the box using a force of brigade-level strength. The hope was to achieve a perfect encirclement, chasing the legendary glory of Hannibal's victory at the Battle of Kanai. To do this, they had exhausted and unbelievably demoralized men, and they would have to achieve a scheme of geometric perfection. Yes, it was a long shot. The troops Lomax came to command were badly shaken, 
malaria-ridden battalions departing the disastrous Arakan campaign at the point of exhaustion. There were no trained formations available in India to replace them, thus they would have to be retained in combat. By early April, Lomax had skillfully managed to stabilize the front at the Mangdal Buthadang line. On April the 14th, Marshal Wavell had appointed General Slim's 15th Corps to lead the British Indian forces' retreat. The Japanese sensing weakness amongst the Allied forces continued their advance. On April the 24th, the Japanese reached the British defenses at Buthadang and Mangdao. The 55th Indian Brigade held the first attack at Kanthei while carefully preparing their entrapment box strategy, pushing the Japanese advance along the spine of the Mayu Mountains. However, it all went to shit. Two demoralized battalions gave way to the Japanese pressure, breaking the box open. This forced everything to come undone, and soon the British Indian forces were yet again performing a fighting withdrawal going north. It was reported that the fighting efficiency was so low by April the 28th, the men of the 8th and 13th Frontier Force Regiment had literally fired off all of their ammunition at an imaginary opponent. And when they actually were attacked the next day, they had no option but to retreat. The withdrawal culminated with the capture of Buthadang on May the 9th. The 55th Brigade narrowly escaped annihilation by abandoning their vehicles and heavy equipment while limping by foot over some jungle-covered hills to safety. Five days later, the port of Mangda was evacuated and the British Indian defenders began to take up defensive positions in the open rice field country near Cox Bazar. As General Slim noted, Our only hope is stabilizing the front. If the Japanese really pushed us, was to hold the rice field country. Our men were still untrained for the jungle. They feared it more than they did the enemy. We had to select areas where we could give our troops reasonable fields of fire and open maneuver. It was too much like 1942 over again. With the added bitterness this time that we had been defeated by forces smaller than our own. General Slim was very bitter about the entire ordeal. To make matters even worse, the men only pulled out after Slim's insistent pressure applied to Lomax, because Irwin was counter-arguing that they should toss the kitchen sink for a siege strategy. And I would like to take another side note here just to uh, point something out that's kind of unique to this part of the entire war. If you go back in time all the way to the first, uh, well, six months of the Pacific War, there was this kind of psychological effect going on when it came to the Allies against the Japanese. You can literally find primary sources calling the Japanese superhuman, uh, jungle-fighting wizards, basically. Like The Allies had no idea how the Japanese were pulling off this when it came to ground force combat. The Allies were being attacked at night because the Japanese loved night raids. The Allies were terrified, particularly in Burma. That exact same feeling... It's left most other places. So, for example, in Guadalcanal, the Americans, they, you know, they got a feel for exactly how the Japanese fight, and they were learning. In New Guinea, it's almost the exact same thing with the Australians. But here in Burma, the British and Indian forces, they have just been completely defeated over and over and over again. Their commanders are looking at the units on the board, and they're saying to themselves, how exactly are the Japanese pulling this off? If you were a General Slim, for example, and you have a map out in front of you, and you're talking to subordinate officers, and you're looking at the logistics line for the Japanese, 
You have to feel real embarrassment right now at how your forces are performing. The Japanese are performing arguably miracles. Not to mention, where they are now, the Japanese don't have air superiority anymore. Because air superiority was arguably what was really doing it for them during most of the Burma campaign. The point I'm making is, unlike all other areas of this war, right now in Burma, the Allies are still fighting the quote-unquote superhumans. That's not something you want to be facing a country that is kind of on the brink of becoming independent and possibly joining the enemy. It was a very tense situation for the British, who, you know, were only fixated on retaining their empire and not really winning the war. And uh, speaking of that, all the way over in London, Sir Winston Churchill had this to say of the event. This campaign goes from bad to worse, and we are being completely outfought and outmaneuvered by the Japanese. Luckily, the small scale of operations and the attraction of other events has prevented public opinion being directed upon this lamentable scene. Sir Winston Churchill was writing at a time after the Anglo-American victory in North Africa and the crushing Soviet victory at Stalingrad. It was obvious to Churchill and most of the other Allied leadership, Europe had already been won. Churchill was furious with Wavell, a man he never really liked. The Americans likewise were not at all happy with Wavell. Meanwhile, Irwin kept blaming everyone except himself, even sending reports of how cowardly his troops were. And I'm just going to say it here. To send reports accusing your own men of being cowardly? That is a cowardly thing to do. Irwin's last absurdity was to signal a recommendation that General Slim be removed from commanding the 15th Corps. But Wavell, under severe criticism of himself by this point, was determined that Irwin would be sacked. Thank God. Slim was ordered to report to Irwin's HQ. Slim began telling all of his colleagues around him that he was about to be dismissed as he made his way to meet Irwin. When he got to Irwin, he was met with this. You're not sacked. I am. Upon hearing these words, Slim remarked this. I think this calls for opening a bottle of port or something if we have one. I gotta tell you, there's quite a few great commanders in World War II. But General Slim, he's a soldier's soldier. I just, I don't know anyone who's ever written about the man that doesn't love this guy. The British Indian Force had 916 dead, 2,889 wounded, and 12,052 missing. The Indian High Command had suffered another heavy blow, with the myth of the Japanese superiority, excellence and skill as jungle fighters, quote-unquote being superhumans being strongly reinforced in the minds of the British and Indian troops, something that gravely affected their morale. General Slim held a rather remarkable ability during all of this, something a lot of people noted. You would call it his mental toughness with some extraordinary resistance to stress. The frustrations of all of the defeats, the constant shuffling between the HQs and the front was a lot to bear. Slim actually found something positive about the Arakan disaster. The British battle casualties were very high, but they could have been a hell of a lot higher, given Irwin's insistence to perform endless frontal assaults. 
the British had learned a valuable lesson about the Japanese and the lack of their own training in specific areas. There had been over 7,500 cases of malaria, and they were only truly learning on the spot how to deal with the pesky disease. Troops henceforth would be routinely issued with mosquito nets, repellents, and by autumn of 1943, a wonder drug was developed, mepicrine, which had significantly helped with the symptoms of malaria. Though, might I add, so many different units had this drug and they weren't using it properly because apparently, I think it was that it tasted like shit or something, the men just would not take the pills. And uh, General Slim is actually one of those figures that had to figure out a way to get the men to do so. It sounds like a minor and stupid issue. Like, I mean, you're suffering from malaria, you just, you think, eat the pill. But apparently it was really that bad. But by far and large, the most significant long-term development from uh, 1942 to 1943 was the gradual reassertion of Allied air superiority. By the end of 1942, 150 new airfields were constructed. RAF pilots and aircraft began to arrive to them in large numbers, and the Americans had sent 10,000 Air Force personnel to serve in the CBI theater. Heavy B-24 Liberator bombers began to appear at the battlefront for the very first time, and in November of 1942, some made a spectacular 2,760-mile return trip after bombing Bangkok. The Japanese quickly realized their proposed Burma-Siam railway was very vulnerable. When the war in the Middle East came to a close in early 1943, the United States Army Air Force transferred a ton of their heavy bombers to the Far East. Bombing raids against Bangkok, Rangoon, and Mandalay were increased significantly by Christmas of 1942. The Japanese were gradually losing their air superiority, and this was deeply troubling for them. During the Arakan campaign, a Japanese colonel issued the following orders. There must be no fear of aircraft. As long as you are not discovered, you must seek to remain so. If once our position is revealed, the enemy planes must be shot down. It is not permissible to suppose that our soldiers are no match for aircraft. The Japanese were forced to yield the skies over Arakan, even though they had taken its ground. The RAF would conduct search-and-destroy missions over Thaitkito, Buthadang, Siho, and the Akeb Island in June. Six Hurricanes would escort some Blenheim bombers on a long-range raid against Ramri Island, even though they were not safe. Allied air superiority would eventually become the crucial factor to win the struggle over Burma. But it would take a very, very long time. Now, we can't talk about Burma without talking a bit more about the Mad Onion Man Wingate. While the Arakan campaign was coming to its disastrous conclusion, Operation Longcloth had reached its own. The last remaining columns made their way back to Allied territory. 2,182 men returned out of the original 3,000 that had entered Burma. An estimated 818 men had been killed, taken prisoner, or died of disease. There was a ton of criticism tossed at the operation, and the effectiveness of the Chindits overall. But the operation was moderately successful. And when I say moderately successful, I mean only because of all of the other shit going on. This is probably going to sound pretty weird to all of you, but the first thing that comes to mind is when I was a teenager in high school, I had an English teacher. God, the guy was, uh, man, he really was a tough teacher too. 
And uh, well, for those of you in America and uh, well in the West, you know we all have to read pretty much the same books, uh, even us Canadians. Uh, one of those books is, of course, The Great Gatsby. Now, I don't want to hurt any of your feelings. I think the book is a enormous piece of shit. But uh, my opinion at the time, being the dumb punk 16-year-old teenager that I was, uh, was shared by my fellow classmates. We all asked why we were reading this book because it quote-unquote sucked. My teacher agreed. And he said the reason why we're reading it is that it was considered a great piece of literature simply because it came out during a time when no other books came out. Yeah, that's, uh, that was his rationale for it. And I looked it up. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. This happens in all different kinds of fields. When there's just a lot of bad things going on, something that just isn't as bad looks like it's glorious. And this seems to be the case of the Chindit's first operation. To be brutally honest, the Burma campaign had basically no success stories, except for the Chindits. Thus, it got inflated quite heavily. As my teacher would argue, The Great Gatsby sold so many copies because there was simply nothing else to read at the time. And thus, the Allies at this point would heavily use the Chindits operation for propaganda purposes, because, well, they had to have something positive come out, everybody was so down. Wavell was very pleased with the performance of Wingate's forces, so much so that he put an order to form a new long-range penetration group, the 111th Indian Brigade. Wavell handpicked their commander, Brigadier William Longtang, who would come to hate Wingate, and Wingate hated him. The success of the Chindas operation would be tossed in all the major headlines of every newspaper from England to India. The British had to do something to raise the morale, and the Chindits kind of, well, they just fell into it. Now, one last major event that occurred during all of this was a major conference. Wavell had been flown over to Washington to partake in the Trident Conference, which was carried from May the 12th to the 25th. The main focus of the conference was the European theater. In fact, there was an obsession over the Mediterranean cross-channel invasion plans at the time. When it came to theaters like Burma, well, there was very little interest. In fact, just to make a point of how little interest there was in Burma, Churchill would often talk about just Singapore when the East was brought up, showcasing full and well he only sought to revitalize the prestige of the British Empire over all other things. Burma was of such little interest, Churchill was actually in favor of bypassing Burma altogether. He viewed the Burma campaign of being only beneficial to China, a subject that he could not understand why FDR obsessed over so much. It seemed to Churchill FDR regarded China as the emerging dominant power in the Far East, while Churchill only regarded China as a Pacific power, ignoring China's claims over Tibet, Mongolia, northeastern Burma, and of course, Churchill would completely ignore any mention of Hong Kong. FDR was seen to be extremely pro Chiang Kai-shek, almost manic-like by British accounts. The British began adopting a Machiavellian stance of supporting Chiang Kai-shek via Chenault's air power, thinking it would surely fail, which served Britain just fine. Meanwhile, good old Vinegar Joseph Stilwell, also at the Trident Conference, kept trying to persuade his president that Chiang Kai-shek was cunning and quite evil. He stressed the danger of the Americans becoming a solitary atlas, bearing the burden of the world because the British were outplaying them. 
He underlined Chiang Kai-shek's ambitions to get rid of him and to replace him with a yes-man so that he could acquire lend-lease materials for his own ends without any pushback. Stilwell recommended sending U.S. troops to the CBI theater to get Chiang Kai-shek to make specific commitments to stop wiggling around issues and, above all else, to stop Chiang Kai-shek's stab-in-the-back secret diplomacy antics. Stilwell would find the British at Trident very unimpressed with him and his opinions. I mean, Stilwell was known to be a, an anglophobe, like a huge one, so... Yeah, they wouldn't be happy with him in general. And I mean, Stilwell was a really kind of tough guy to talk to. They don't call him Vinegar Joe for nothing. Stilwell also chose to bitterly argue with one Field Marshal Allenbrook, the chief of the Imperial Staff and a rampant American-phobe. So you got the Anglophobe and the American-phobe at it. Would have been probably really funny at the meeting. It got so bad, apparently George Marshall told Stimson... Stilwell shut up like a clam and made an unfavorable impression. During the conference, FDR did ask Stilwell in private what he thought of Chiang Kai-shek, to which Stilwell said this, He's a vacillating, tricky, undependable old scoundrel who never keeps his word. By contrast, Chenault, when asked a similar question, replied this, Sir, I think the Generalissimo is one of the two or three greatest military and political leaders in the world today. He has never broken a commitment or promise made to me. Just want to point out, for those of you who don't know the story of this love triangle between Chiang Kai-shek, Chenault, and Stilwell, Chiang Kai-shek was unbelievably nice to Chenault because he thought that he could get still well fired by doing so. That really is the rationale for it. And Chenault was completely aware of this. It's a really weird story. There's a lot of books on it, and I, I do recommend any of them. I think there's like five books just on this. If you break it down, each of the three had their own rationales for what they were doing. Chenault thought that the more he, you know, talked to Chiang Kai-shek, the more chances he would get more air forces to increase his own power. Because Chenault this whole time, is uh, he's campaigning to basically build all of these airfields from which he thinks he will gradually defeat the Japanese within China and then use these airfields to, you know, hammer the home islands. Which does happen. The early days of Bomber Command does originate in China. Actually, a large reason, well, for those of you who know, Operation Ichigo is actually kind of tossed at China is because of Chenault's buildup of air power. And his air forces are completely destroyed. Like, it is incredible. Ichigo was an enormous feat. Uh, of, it was one of the greatest Japanese offensives of all time, just to say the least. But Stilwell, likewise, is campaigning to, you know, hurt Chiang Kai-shek because of personal grievances, and he just wants more authority so that he can control the forces and, you know, go into Burma, because he actually, you know, Stilwell, despite being a bit of an asshole, he, he has a pretty good eye for strategy and he, he, he's doing the right thing in the end, but his interpersonal issues with Chiang Kai-shek are just full-scale deteriorating the entire thing. And then we have Chiang Kai-shek who is, you know, he's trying to fight a war against his enemy, the communists, you know, Mao Zedong. So he, he's basically trying to take all this lend-lease materials and hold it, you know, in the back. He, he's trying to make sure that he retains all of his forces to fight off the communists because he can see that they're building up. You know, all of his forces are fighting the lion's share of this war. He's losing things by the day, while Mao Zedong is only gaining. 
I mean, the Second Sino-Japanese War is what really helps the communists come to power. So yeah, you've got these three guys talking to each other, you know, being nice at one point, attacking the other point, and it's just all because they have their own agendas. Meanwhile, you have FDR hearing all of these complaints from all three of them. Chiang Kai-shek's representatives, including his wife, were threatening to pull out of Burma and to make a separate peace with the Japanese, unless the British finally took action to seize Rangoon. Instead, it was agreed that more supplies would be tossed over the hump, and for the future operation Anakim to be shelved. To which Stilwell argued that if the Allies waited another year before launching a land-based campaign in Burma, China would collapse. Trident was chaotic as hell. Admiral King slammed the table with his fists many times, violently supporting Marshall and Stilwell. King and Marshall wanted the land route to China open, but the British kept tossing their support for the hump operations. Stilwell was not having a good time, but then he had a surprising victory. Stilwell met with Churchill privately, complaining about the abysmal situation in Burma, and Churchill 100% agreed with his criticisms. I will note a large part for him agreeing to these criticisms was simply because he hated Weifel. He acknowledged the high command in India was terrible, and that he was going to replace Weifel. And Stilwell wrote this after his experience talking to Churchill. With Wavell in command, failure was inevitable. He had nothing to offer at any meeting except prostrations that the thing was impossible, hopeless, impractical. Churchill even spoke of it as silly. The Limeys all wanted to wait another year. After the Akyab fiasco, the four Japanese divisions in Burma had been scared to death. The inevitable conclusion was that Churchill had Roosevelt in his pocket. That they are looking for an easy way, a shortcut for England, and that no attention must be diverted from the continent at any cost. The Limeys are not interested in the war in the Pacific, and with the president hypnotized, they are sitting pretty. Roosevelt wouldn't let me speak my piece. I interrupted twice, but Churchill kept pulling away from the subject and it was impossible. Thus, in the end, Wavell was, as they say, kicked upstairs. He was promoted to Viceroy of India and replaced as commander in India with Sir Claude Auchinleck. Stilwell returned to China and participated on a celebrity tour arranged by George Marshall to heighten his own profile. Once that was done, Stilwell fell into a major depression and he wrote this. I'm going back to find Chiang Kai-shek same as ever. A grasping, bigoted, ungrateful little rattlesnake. Any Jap threat will put the peanut in an uproar. And if they are wise, they will repeat their attempt. For this is for no other reason. And if they seriously want to gain the game, they can attack Kunming or Changxing, or both, with five divisions on either line and finish the matter completely. If we sting them badly enough in the air, they are almost sure to try it. The Peanuts promise of picked men for India is so much wind. Last year, 68% of the men sent were rejected for trachoma or skin disease. This is going beyond all bounds. This insect, this stink in the nostrils, inquires what we will do, who are breaking our backs to help him, supplying everything, troops, equipment, planes, medical, signal, motor services, setting up his goddamn SOS training his lousy troops, backing his dastardly chief of staff, 
and general staff. And he, the Jovian dictator, who starves his troops and is the world's worst ignoramus, picks flaws in our preparations and hems and haws about the Navy. God save us. Stillwell's frustration was a bit understandable as Chiang Kai-shek still had not replied to FDR about if or even when he would commit forces into Burma again. Stillwell was baffled by his nation's continued support of what he saw as a fascist regime in China, while simultaneously fighting the fascist regimes in Europe. What Stillwell really wanted was to be made field commander in China, and if he ever got that position, the first thing he would do was cancel the land lease. Things were not going so well for the married couple of Vinegar Joe and Peanut. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I got something a little different coming out soon, a historic film review of the movie Grave of the Fireflies. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. This month's exclusive podcast over there is an interview I did with Chuck Myers. Chuck Myers served the United States Navy aboard multiple aircraft carriers, and he is an associate at the USS Hornet Museum today. He also happened to be the main historical consultant for the last Midway film. So the interview is about the USS Hornet's history and his time working on Midway. It's a really interesting one. Go check it out. It would mean a lot to me. Things were not going well in Burma, to say the least. Well, except for the Chindit's minor success. But that simply could not overcome the incredible low morale of the Far East Allied forces in the face of what seemed to be an unstoppable, superhuman Japanese Goliath. 